0: What's going on, everybody? We are back with Real Bodybuilding Podcast, episode number 28. We took a little bit of a hiatus. Um, I was trying to find a guest that I really could learn from, and um, somebody that's very well-known in the industry, Victoria Felker, is with us. She's a researcher and consultant, so if you'd like to say hello, Victoria.
1: Hello.
0: Um, Victoria, you're very well-known for blood work, for uh, anabolics with, in women's use and, uh, a whole bunch of different aspects. So I want to get into a whole bunch of things, but before we get into it, I wanted to ask you how you started. Like, was it the mental side or the physical side that got into, got you into it first?
1: Mm-hmm. It was both. Um, okay. it was one of those, some of all factors that my own personal journey, um, and my own health issues kind of came together with my education and my schooling. Okay. And also my passion, which was bodybuilding. So it was this definite kind of shitstorm of sorts that <laughs> okay. uh, that happened when I was about 18, 19. And okay. really, I mean, well, I'm here today. So it changed yeah. my life in innumerable
0: ways. So what was, okay, so it all started together. Did you do any mm-hmm. competitions or did you start working out at a local gym or how did you no, fall in love so, with
1: it? Yeah, so I started training when I was 15 um, okay. and so this was 15 years ago, uh, and that was like the pre-DLB era, so girls really didn't lift yeah. weights. It wasn't popular for women to be in the weight room, um, and at the time, I was still a classical ballet dancer, so that's what my training was in. Okay. Um, I was, I mean, I did part-time high school. That was my, that was my jam, and uh, I had an eating disorder, and so I joined a local gym. I was, lived in, I mean, grew up in Vancouver, so it rained like six months of the year, Joined a local gym to continue running, and one day I just saw like all the guys were having fun in the weight pit. All the women were like miserable on the treadmills, yeah. uh, and I was like, "Fuck this! I want to know what they're doing."
0: Is that where you were? You were up on the treadmills with all the women? I was up
1: on the treadmills, yeah. Okay. And I was I would do like a like a half a marathon. Like I was a cardio bunny to the extent because I mean, exercise addiction was part of my it's part of the whole eating disorder nebulous. Um, and I literally was like, I don't even like running. Like they look like they're having fun, literally got off the treadmill. I had some friends from my high school that were training and I was like, can you show me what to do? They showed me like four exercises, all arms. And that was, (laughs) that was how I got started. It was, um, I mean, bicep curl, hammer curl, tricep, uh, rope, push down and dips. And I did that for like five days a week for about a month until I was like, I really got to learn more. Like Something I can't else. keep doing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I actually ended up getting my personal training, like certifications at night school, um, which in Canada, and it's a little bit complicated, Obviously well, at least in BC it was back then it was complicated to become a trainer. So I actually had to go to like a college and I did night school and I did, I mean, fitness theory and anatomy and all that stuff. And then I was able to apply that
0: to the gym.
1: Um, and that's really how I got started.
0: So what was... So okay, there's a whole bunch of questions I got just mm-hmm. from that. But, <laughs> so you started doing arms for like what however long?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, how long did it take you to get all the certifications, though?
1: Oh gosh, I um.
0: Not all of them till you're now. I mean, just all yeah. of them till you had your at first. The be- certification.
1: At the beginning, I did about six months of night schooling, is what it took. So you had to do something called fitness theory, which was just the general, I mean, basic underlying principles of strength training anatomy. So from Um, energy systems to basic biomechanics. And then you actually had to do like a personal training module, which was stuff like how to teach somebody like the the scripting for doing uh, certain exercises or for measuring blood pressure and heart rate. And then it kind of just evolved from there. I built onto that one. I went into my undergrad, which was in kinesiology, Mm -hmm. did more certifications, became a certified exercise physiologist. Um, And so that was the, the, that was kind of the the exercise physiology background of things, yeah. but at the same time I was still doing like my undergrad degree. I was doing pre med, okay. um, so there's a can there's have, a lot of schooling back there.
0: Can I ask you a question that it, it mm-hmm. might be might be off, but I'm just curious. Yeah. I noticed people with addictions that. Mm-hmm. So you had an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was the eating disorder like? What was the uh, mm-hmm. was it you weren't eating enough or eating too much or what was the eating? Yeah.
1: disorder? so it was severe anorexia. I okay. ate about give or take 200 to 300 calories a day. Um, I danced uh, for anywhere between four to eight hours a day. And then I also was running on top of that to try to manipulate my body comp. Um, I've always been short. So I was short and stocky. I didn't look like a ballerina and I wanted to.
0: Was the body image Mm -hmm. created by being a ballerina? Was it like you were the anorexia created by that? Yeah. Okay. So you felt like you had to be as light as you could be.
1: Yeah. And it started really young. Like I went back, I I had kept journals and diaries from a super young age. Um, And actually when I moved last year, I found my, I found like the whole archive of my life. Mm -hmm. And I was so surprised to find out that I actually started having kind of like negative body image and disordered eating when I was eight.
0: Wow. Like, it was
1: shocking to me about talking about food restriction even back at that age. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it just, it progressed very quickly and very severely. Um. But I never looked like I was anorexic because yeah. I am very densely muscled. Even though I had, I mean, so much restriction, so much energy um, imbalance, I still, I mean, I still had massive quads on me from dancing. Yeah. Um so yeah, so it was definitely a severe anorexia.
0: So Do you think the, the question I mm-hmm. was kind of leading to is I noticed people that have addictions or like, I don't know if that's considered an addiction, mm-hmm. um, but they, if they can point it to something positive,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it works for them instead of against them.
1: Absolutely. And it, and sound, that's...
0: it, it sounds like from your story that you just mm-hmm. kind of channeled that thing into mm-hmm night, you've gone from like, I like kind of like working out to mm-hmm. I know everything about working. out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that, because that was actually how I got out of anorexia was, um, I was at the grocery store one day, and I saw Monica Brandt on the cover of Oxygen magazine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this was back in the early 2000s. And um, it said, like, eat like a pro. And I was like, a pro what? Like, I didn't even know what IFBBs were like back yep. then. So I opened it up and it had her diet. And at that point in time, I saw like she was jacked, loved her body, saw what she was eating. And I'm like, holy crap, I'm not eating enough.
0: Were you, were you, were you, is this when you were training arms or were you further along? No,
1: I was, this was around that, that training. The beginning stage. Yeah. Yeah. This was at the beginning. And so then that was, that opened my eyes up because I mean in my mind growing up, it was all about calorie restriction. It was all about, I mean, less is more. So less food equals more fat loss equals, um, the, you know, creating the body that you want. And so it definitely opened my eyes up at that point. I was like, okay, I got to start eating like she eats. And so I did, I mean, I, I copied her diet until then I actually, um, was able to, to work with some, I mean, a nutritionist to, to start to mobilize what what is a proper diet for me? And yeah. then kind of my education and everything, all that
0: followed. What were you, when you followed her diet, mm-hmm. um, I imagine, and I could be wrong, but I imagine <laughs> that you followed it like to a T.
1: Oh yeah. Did you oh, reduce, God, did
0: yeah. you, did you adjust the calories through your body at all? Or did you just follow at,
1: it? At the start I did. Cause I was like, I can't even get through <laughs> one meal. Like my <laughs> yeah. stomach was so shrunken. I couldn't right. even get through one meal. Yeah. Um, and then I also had a lot of food allergies even before I got into fitness, even before I had um, my eating disorder. And so I did have to tailor it to my own kind of, um, I mean, carbohydrate sources, for example. Yeah. Um, and I also learned very quickly that dairy did not work for me cause she had a lot of dairy in that diet.
0: Really?
1: Okay. Um, oh yeah, it was like yogurt and, um, ricotta cheese and feta su- cheese and stuff like that. Surprising. Um, yeah, I don't think it was actually her like contest prep diet. Yeah. It was probably yeah. more like a lifestyle one.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but yeah, so it, it definitely did. And even after that point, I, I can remember being in my undergrad and uh, working with different bodybuilding coaches. I mean, John Meadows, that's, that's really how he changed my life. Dr. Eric Turner changed my life. Yeah. Um, but following John's plans, and I was, I mean, I was just a maniac. I was to the gram. It was like if something said three ounces, I was like, three ounces,
0: Like, Mm -hmm. this is what
1: I have to do. I'm, you know, I was very, very, very regimented. And also, I mean, well, it was to a fault. Um, Absolutely to a fault.
0: I I was going to ask you that. Do you think Mm -hmm. there's a, do do you think there's a point, even though it's being used for something positive, Mm -hmm. do you Mm -hmm. feel like there's a point where it can be destructive, even if it's a positive point you're, you're kind of aiming at?
1: For sure. Because I didn't listen. I, I, I didn't go from, you know, not, you know, going into override where I would say override my hunger. Um, I didn't learn my body. I just learned another way around my body. And Mm -hmm. so I wasn't listening still to things like hunger cues. I wasn't listening to things like um, how I was feeling or my energy or even my lab work. Cause even back then, I mean, my, when I had my eating disorder, I had severe anemia to the point that I had to do iron infusions because I I had no iron in my body. And so, Mm -hmm. um, even afterwards, it was, it was a long, it was a long road to begin to learn my body and Mm. also to be able to trust actually how I felt. Yeah. Um, because that's something that I think even as competitors, um, the most seasoned competitor, you kind of have to override that at some points, that's how you can get to the stage and the conditioning that you want.
0: I was just going to ask you that because we're taught, I I don't know if we're taught Mm -hmm. or if we just, we just Mm kind of tell ourselves that it doesn't matter what you're feeling. Like, yeah. like, for example, as a bodybuilder in the off season, if I'm not hungry, I'm told to ignore that and you got to eat anyways. Mm-hmm. And if I'm starving and when I'm doing my contest prep, I have to ignore that and starve. Mm-hmm. So how do you learn your body when you're trying to, is this something that you had to be, did you compete ever?
1: No, I got close to it and I actually pulled out for, that was one of the reasons why.
0: Um, Okay. So that's what I was leading to. mm -hmm. So so if you're not competing, as far as like learning your body and listening to your body, is that something that only applies to people not competing? Or can you apply that as a competitor as well?
1: Mm -hmm. I think you can apply it as a competitor as well and not as a competitor. I mean, it's, I think the basic, uh, I call it conscious living. Mm -hmm. Like you might have to override it, but you recognize that you can recognize that, Hey, what I'm doing might not be optimal for health. But right now, it's serving a purpose in my life. I mean, one of the best examples I can use for this is like, as a student, say that they have to do an all-nighter for an exam. Well, that's a conscious decision that they are making to restrict their sleep.
2: Yeah.
1: Is there benefits to that? Sure. They get to study all night for their exam the next morning. Are there drawbacks? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of physiological implications of that. Um, but they made a conscious decision. Nobody was forcing them.
3: Mm-hmm. It
1: was a very... Um, it was a decision that was grounded in reflection.
0: Okay. not I, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt, Sandra, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I just can't all competitors say that. Like, can not mm-hmm. I just say, I can say that about every show I've ever done. I could be like, well, yeah. I consciously chose to do the show. So yeah. I'm consciously starving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so does that mean it's okay?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it comes into, do you know the implications for your behavior for the decision uh. that you're making? If you don't recognize the implications, that's I mean for me, that's a big piece of it. That's where education comes into play. Even when we talk about like risk management as it relates to anabolic androgenic use, education trumps. That's how we're able to actually begin to create some sense of of health in this kind of chaotic environment. And I think with competing, it, it is similar to that. Is that do you know, say the restrictions if you're if you're pulling all your carbs out? Yeah. Do you know? what's going to happen as a result of that and not just say eliciting fat loss. Yeah. Do you know the, the duration say that you can, you can do that for it before it has dire um, metabolic consequences? And are you okay with, and, and do you even know the way out of it?
0: Okay, now I get it because I don't think 90% of us know that we're, we're just like, we'll cut this and this will lose fat, but we don't understand. And I'm guilty of it myself. Mm -hmm. We don't, and I'm kind of going through some blood work issues myself right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's because I didn't know all of the pitfalls of everything I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go back though, because you said something about Mm -hmm. food allergies and I find Mm -hmm. uh, the food allergy thing to be very interesting. So are food allergies Ah. something that you think is developed or do you think it's something you're born with? or both. Yeah.
1: Yes, both. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes and yes. Yes,
1: yes and yes. Um I think so the body is really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um whenever we think we understand we really don't because we learn something new or something that refutes something that we once thought about in the body. Yeah. And so when it comes to food allergies there are different kind of classifications. We know there's allergies versus intolerances okay. versus say just um, certain types of uh, pathologies that affect our, the ways in which we digest something. Um, and so there is definitely, I think people say the word food allergy, they might mean intolerance, they might mean um, say an inflammatory process of another type or so on and so forth. Um, so food allergies, when we think about it in kind of that definition, something like celiac disease Um, celiac disease is, uh, related to wheat and gluten. Um, it is an immunoglobulin response, which means we actually have an immune system response. It's to a protein called IgA. Okay. That, that specific protein has a genetic basis to it. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to only have this gene mutation though to have celiac disease. And conversely, you can have that gene mutation and not have the manifestation of celiac disease because the, our genes live in an environment that we create. And yeah. so if your body, say, goes under a, a ton of physiological stress, mm-hmm. we can then trigger that gene mm-hmm. to result in a pathology or a disease state. Um, something like the IgA, um, gene mutation we now know is related to other things too, like asthma, believe it or not, okay. that there is a link between those. And so, um, we, that's what I mean by it's it's just it is something that is so complicated um and I am glad you asked me about this because this is one thing that I feel that is definitely missing um in the conversation about health in the industry right now is that we we view things in such a reductionist kind of like single-minded blinders up box when it comes to bodybuilding it's like when you think about contest prep all too often it's like I used to joke around calling it the big three you have training you have diet and then you have supplements or you know ergogenic yeah. aids like drugs that's yeah. it that's yeah. your plan from your coach
2: yeah
1: um and that that box that you put it in um well it might serve a purpose often it causes a lot more damage in the long run yeah. um because we don't think about all these different interactions reactions um connections relationships and that something like exercise it affects our nutrient status okay. something like drug use it affects our nutrient status yeah. we know that it's not just like protein equals muscle growth yeah
2: yeah.
1: right we know protein causes an acute insulin response well it's not just carbs that do that and so i feel that that kind of reductionist approach that we think about when it comes to prep we also think about with our body i mean think about the thyroid gland Mm -hmm. all too often you hear about it being manipulated solely for the purposes of fat loss as if that's all the thyroid does yeah
0: what else is what else doesn't what else does it well, give me give me the most important ones. I most don't to...
1: important one. Yeah. Well, so it it is your body's metabolic rate, which is very, very important. Um, it though does also affect your moods. Um, okay. Thyroid is manipulated in cases of depression. They will actually augment a lot of times uh, antidepressants if they don't want to say stack certain antidepressants together. they will add in t three
2: okay. to
1: see how that affects the overall moods because if you think about it, a depressed thyroid, Mm-hmm. Results in a depressed physiological state. I that see. includes your mind. Um, mm-hmm. Digestion. That's why often when people all of a sudden take, say, T3 during contest prep, they can't leave the bathroom because yeah. they've just induced a state of hyperthyroidism. Yeah. It also affects our immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, even other things. So, like low thyroid hormone can lead to things like elevated cholesterol,
2: yeah. uh,
1: ele- elevated triglycerides, gallstones. Um, and that we don't necessarily understand all of how all these interactions occur, but there's the research that has shown these links between certain, um, what you would call either a pathology or a dysfunction in the
0: body. So what are we doing? I have two questions from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first one is if you do develop or have a genetic disposition to Mm -hmm. celiac disease, for Mm -hmm. example, or some type of IBS or Mm -hmm. uh, some type of food intolerance. Mm -hmm. is that something that's reversible or can be fixed or somehow can your diet can uh, adjust your body so that you can take in those foods? Or is that something you just have to live with forever? Like that's really the first Mm -hmm. thing I want to ask. And then I want the second question was if you do have a depressed thyroid or Mm -hmm. low thyroid or anything like that, can you increase it without medication? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So great question. So the, First one being about, say, celiac disease. And the answer to that is, I don't know. Uh, okay. Because it is, it is, yes, research has shown that the environment, we have to look at this, like, genome transcription kind of protein response, and then we have to look at the environment too. Um, certain types of genetic, uh, you know, primary genetic mutations can be more pronounced
2: okay. in a
1: highly stressed environment. So a great example, I can speak from personal experience on this one.
2: Okay. I
1: haven't had wheat gluten in years. I was actually diagnosed with celiacs at eight. Okay. Um, when I was in contest prep, that would have been about like six years ago, I spontaneously had elevated IgA levels and also some of the other proteins that you associate with celiac disease.
2: Okay. My physician
1: came to me and he was like, what are you doing? Like, are you mystery eating wheat or something?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I
1: was like, well, no, but my body was under so much physiological stress oh. at that point in time that i had i mean i jokingly was like it was spontaneous but it wasn't spontaneous at all yeah. it was there was an acute reaction and response that had happened and resulted in this manifestation now the same thing could be said about something like um i mean heart disease if somebody has like heart uh, like family that's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy yeah. um which is like a it, there is a genetic. Basis to it that it can be passed down its hereditary, which is why it's called family oil. Um, However, you can have that and manage your lifestyle through, I mean, stress reduction and positive exercise and a nutritious diet. Um, and you can actually reduce the chance of that gene manifesting into a disease state. Okay. When it manifests into a disease state, you can also make really positive changes to the environment of your body. Mm-hmm. And Decrease the impact of that actually manifesting in a disease state.
0: How do we know before we get into the thyroid question? Mm-hmm. How do we know? I, I've read a lot about the stress factor. Mm-hmm. How do we know when we're stressed? Because honestly, I feel like I'm stressed all the time and <laughs> maybe I'm not. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I just don't know how to measure mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Unfortunately, there's no gold standard here at all. Um, <laughs> okay. I mean, at all. Cause it is, it is a very individual thing. Yeah. One of the things that I tend to do, I mean, you can use like, I mean, there's certain stress questionnaires. That's like all of these cataclysmic events that can happen in somebody's life and yeah. they're all labeled um, and, and ranked. Now the thing about that is that we all have different coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. um, both in terms of the physiological, but also a psychological. you hear about people that are like the gritties that can mm-hmm. go through all these intense trauma And, you know, knock it off like it's nothing ever happened. Then there are people that have certain, say, um, I mean, it's called neurotransmitter uh, dysfunctions that they are in a heightened state of arousal. All the time, they stub their toe and it's like the world has ended. Um, So there is, our perception is really important here. Um, The way that I look at it is the sum of all factors. Uh, The most simple metaphor I can use is the stress bucket which essentially think of it having this massive bucket. Um, and you have a tap that gets turned on now mm-hmm. every day you have certain stressors in your life. You go to the gym. That is a stressor on your body. You mm-hmm. run a business. That is a stressor on your body. It, mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, it's a pot can be considered a positive stressor, but it's still a stressor relationships. Now all of a sudden, let's say that you, um, stop having po- like good sleep at night. Yeah. Well, that's now a stressor. So we you know, that tap is turning I on see, and water's flowing in. And so, if we have more water flowing into our bucket than our bucket can hold, mm-hmm. we start spilling over. And this is typically when we see things like dysfunctional digestion, uh, lower thyroid, uh, sex hormones that get maladjusted, a, a high, low state of immune system, neurotransmitter deficiencies, um, I mean, brain health changes. So, I guess.
0: I guess what I'm mm-hmm. asking is if you're the kind of person that stubs their toe and freaks mm-hmm. out, which mm-hmm. is probably me. Mm-hmm. Then how do you not, how do you, <laughs> aside from seeing a psychologist, how yeah. do you change from being that person?
1: Yeah. Well, I, again, it's, you're hitting me out with all these really hard questions because it, it depends if you're somebody that has a neurotransmitter deficiency and that's maybe what's causing, or even just your neurotransmitter, there's some weird ratios going on and mm-hmm. that's what's causing it. Well, that, will take more than just therapy. Now, developing positive coping mechanisms, though, they do go a long way. Meditation does go a long way. Yeah. And the research supports that. It's not just me going like, you know, all woo-woo, breathe every day. It's yeah. like, no, yeah. breathing every day, like intentional breathing practice, if we strip it down, yeah. you are down-regulating your nervous system, yeah. which means that you are going from a state of fight or flight to rest and digest the more that you're in the state of rest and digest the the less likely you are to get stimulated by small triggered responses. Now the caveat that comes in here though, is that you can have physiological trauma that affects this as well. So say for example, um, I mean, you've got, I don't know, your back is misaligned from a really hard leg day and that is now triggering Your body to go like, "Hey, something's not right," Mm -hmm. and that that saying of "Hey, something's not right" that is a stress response. That is water going into your stress bucket.
0: All right, all right, I have Um, that. I have that all day long.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and chronic pain, chronic pain is like me taking a light switch, like your light switch in your brain, that's your kind of your stress switch, and just cranking it up. There's no dimmer switch. It's just on. And often, what happens is, is that people develop a almost like this evolutionary response to no longer feel pain because that is their coping mechanism. But it doesn't mean that that pain stops. That pain is still getting triggered. You're just teaching your body. Your brain is really, really adaptive. It is really smart. It's just teaching your body to not recognize it. Now, the long-term consequences of that are dire because you're going to blow a circuit at some point in time. And that's often when things like I mean, disease state diseases take time to, to manifest. They usually start as some type of dysfunction and then over time they progress into a diseased state. And there's many different things that can cause that process to increase. Mm -hmm. And there's many different things because it's going to still depend on the individual, but there's many different things that you can actually do to slow down those disease progressions. Even if you have a genetic basis for something.
0: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting I feel like my dimmer switch has been turned up to a thousand for like 10 years straight. Now that you've explained it that way, I feel like, and I'm sure a lot of other bodybuilders feel this way. Like if they have a day off from the gym, Mm -hmm. I try and sit around and not do much or I run some errands or whatever. And I feel like that's my Mm -hmm. uh, rest and digest phase as you Mm -hmm. would call it. Mm -hmm. But it's not because Mm -hmm. you're still even, I have a feeling that what you're describing is not Mm -hmm. sitting on the couch and watching TV, but it's actually just sitting in, actually relaxing and actually just being kind of alone in your own thoughts and
2: exactly you know yeah, I
0: don't I don't do that at all so I feel like I always have something I always have the phone or the tv or the mm-hmm. laptop or business or the gym or yeah. and I never have a day where I just do what you said or a time yeah. a day where I do what you said
1: and I didn't up until a couple of years ago so I'm guilty as the I'm guilty as they get yeah. I had to go into a state of of, of clinical physiological burnout To, and even though I, I mean, I went with lecture around the world talking about this stuff, I had to go to that brink to realize that I had to change. I mean, my passion, my hobby, my exercise, my sport, everything was bodybuilding.
2: Yeah. I
1: didn't do anything outside of that at all. I mean, I've been seeing a therapist probably for, since as long as I had an eating disorder. And I still, even though I was unpacking certain trauma, I still wasn't giving myself a chance just to go into it. You actually go into a different type of brainwave state. Yeah. I wasn't giving myself too a chance for my body to actually come down. And the, the important thing about stress is that it is pervasive and that when we are in a state of say external stress, um, you, you know, you're going into exams for school, you've just dealt with a death or a breakup or whatever. If your body's already kind of in this dampened state, the internal physiological stress isn't going to be dealt with as well. So your recovery will get thrown off from training because you just can't handle more. You're, you're breaking. You're at this point that your, your bucket is overflowing. Your dimmer switch is about to explode. And so we have to take active things. And and that's, I mean, with breathing, um, people always ask like, what are the things I can do to, to begin to, to get better? And it's like breathing, sleeping, having yeah. fun, like laugh every day. We know yeah. social isolation, for example, has a massive negative impact on health. Yeah. And you can actually look at the research and it suggests that things like our immune system, our inflammatory responses get maladjusted. We're turning on inflammation signaling when we feel socially isolated. And that's yeah. just one example. And so looking at, as, I mean, as a bodybuilder, looking at the bigger picture, it's not just you in the gym day after day that's going to elicit your goal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There is you. You've got internal factors that are happening today. You've got things that have happened in the past that we have to account for. We mm-hmm. also have to account for things in the future. If you're somebody that, say, wants to have kids, well, we have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Even today, if you're, a say, 21-year-old male prepping for a show, you have to consider that, even though it sounds so far-fetched, because that is actually going to change how you might approach your training plan or your prep or whatever it might be. We have to also look at things that are external to our bodies, things that are happening on the day-to-day with our, say, social relationships, our job, financial status, um, even just like like our long-term income is also incredibly important to this. Looking even beyond that, family, uh, I mean, social economic background, gender or sex, these are all Mm -hmm. things that actually impact our health that we don't even think about when it comes to bodybuilding. It is such a narrow, narrow perspective. And this is called the social ecological model. It's actually from more of a a sociological or social sciences um, background, but it's now being applied within medicine. And in particular, something called either network pharmacology, network biology, or systems biology. And we can even take that one step further and start to apply drugs into that too. And look at all of these different connections Um, all of these different um, interactions that are happening both internal and external to the body that affect our health, which in turn affects our, I mean, just our overall stress on our body.
0: Yeah. I wanted to, I want to, I want to kind of change this topic a little Mm -hmm. bit and only just to lead into it's kind of along the same lines, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to discuss why women Mm -hmm. and men and men when we're competing, it's Mm -hmm. like you said, it's such a narrow scope of things Mm -hmm. and what we can do, to eliminate or not harm ourselves in the process of competing for a show mm-hmm. and more specifically to women. And, I, and mm-hmm. this isn't, this isn't to single out women or anything, but just, yeah. I notice more with women that after shows, a lot of them struggle with eating disorders or weight rebound or even depression. So how do both of us, male and female figure it out during the show and how do we mm-hmm. get through it after the show and maintain like a positive mm-hmm. body image?
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to counter that just a little bit.
0: You've okay. got to
1: think about this before you even start. That's how you can avoid it. Okay. Um, All and right. if it's too late, we'll, we'll address that. But I think one of the big things is that we have to build a foundation. Um, and the best example I can give is, I mean, building a house. If you go and you're going to go buy a house and that house is, say, 30 years old you know you're going to be walking into some things that might have to have some repairs before you even move in or before you even, say, do renovations, like the the, the fixtures and the fun stuff, the painting. So yeah. if you have, though, a house that you're moving into and that foundation is cracked, that probably is going to be the first thing that you're going to address, hopefully. Yes. Now, when you think about that in the context of, say, living in Tornado Alley, where you know your risk for some type of external... Um, disaster is going to be even higher. Mm-hmm. You're going to be on that even sooner. Like that is going to be the first thing you fix. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's bodybuilding. You're walking into this cataclysmic kind of chaotic event. And if you are not going to the bathroom every day, if you're not sleeping, if you've got nutrient um, like um, nutrient deficiencies of any type, if you've got for women a irregular menstrual status, why do you think you're going to be healthy at the end of the day?
0: Oh, so you're saying if you're going into a show with issues, you should be solidifying your situation before you even walk in.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot
0: of people, it's almost like being in a bad relationship where you're like, maybe we should Mm -hmm. get married thinking Mm -hmm. it'll fix everything. (laughs) It's kind of like,
1: absolutely. Kind of like
0: doing the same thing. You're like, well, I'm in bad shape. Maybe I'll do a show and you think it's going to help.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that you can think about it even in the say, say the stress relationship is that when we think about stress, there's different aspects to it. You've got, um, like certain inflammatory signals or glycemic dysregulation, say uh, reactive hyperglycemia, or you've got insulin resistance, you've got perceived stress. So say you're in a state of just like a really bad relationship. You also might have sleep issues. So if you've got all these things before, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a lot harder to, to fix them, but also to manage the extra stress that you're now putting onto your body. Because as you are training, as you're restricting calories, as you're adding in certain compounds, as you are getting closer to uh, the event and you've got kind of like the butterflies and the jitters Mm -hmm. as you are now also say overtraining and under eating and things are just going to get more stressful physiologically as you get closer to that event. If you haven't fixed these other things, they're just going to keep adding like your stress bucket is now like not just overflowing, like it's gone and your capacity (laughs) to manage it is going to be a lot
0: less. So you are okay. So let's assume Mm -hmm. somebody has fixed their foundation and they're going Mm -hmm. into a show and their life is pretty all buttoned up Mm -hmm. everywhere it needs to be buttoned up. They're sleeping well, relationship's good, Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. Where do they go wrong when they're prepping?
1: Yeah, well, I think right there, prep is a stress and we have to think of it like that. You are inducing a physiological stress and for some people in particular, say if they do have some type of genetic like perturbation, then that's only going to, potentially it could get turned on especially if you're now introducing drugs into the mix that you really don't know. We don't know there's not enough research to support some of the certain um, implications of that. So for women, for example, um, I work with a lot of women, so I I can, and I am one, so I can talk about this for, for till the cows come home, but our menstrual cycle and not just our menstrual cycle, ovulation and ovulatory cycles are critical to our health. They are fundamental part of health
2: okay. now
1: ovulatory cycles require the i mean the fundamentals you're not eating too much you're not eating too little you're not training too much you're not training too little your sleep is in line you've got positive social relationships you you know you're managing inflammation you've got uh certain types of mental emotional triggers on, uh, on like under wraps you've got all these things managed. So ovulatory, ovulatory, Cycles require our body to be almost at this homeostatic status, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is that that's how we make babies. Okay. And from an evolutionary perspective, we're not going to make another human if we can't take care of our own shit. Yeah, it yeah. just does not make sense. And so, yeah. and, I, and I don't mean to oversimplify this, but it is a really complicated process. No, I'd rather I, you.
0: I'd rather you oversimplify. It's better for all for all <laughs> of us listening, including myself.
1: <laughs> so, when it comes to ovulatory cycles, though one of the things that can happen when you are overtraining or under eating is that ovulatory cycle is going to go away.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: might still have menses, which is the bleed, but it's very unlikely at that point in time, say you're six weeks out that you're still having an ovulatory cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a bad thing because when mm-hmm. you think about it, cause and effect, you are causing stress on your body. The ovulatory cycle is going to go away. Now, what I find is that a lot of women don't have ovulatory cycles to begin with. Maybe they've been on birth control, um, like an oral contraceptive pill, or they're using ergogenic aids, or they've got all these other issues that haven't been resolved. And so progesterone, which is one of the major kind of reproductive hormones in women, the majority of it gets made when we ovulate. Mm -hmm. Estrogen and progesterone are like yin and yang. When we don't create progesterone through ovulation, estrogen levels typically speaking continue to climb and climb and climb estrogen okay. is also related to things like glucose dysregulation it's related to things like inflammation
2: okay. and
1: so it's also related to high levels of androgens potentially okay so you are creating this hormonal dysfunction and we're just looking at ovulation right now yeah yeah and so when you have I call it the acronym is help high estrogen low progesterone mm-hmm. that always accompanies a state of inflammation okay so we've got ovulation here. Now we also have prep, all yeah. the things that come with prep, yeah. you know, overtraining, undereating. Now we also have to look at estrogen can affect our thyroid function. Okay. Our thyroid needs progesterone to be able to function optimally. So now, even without looking at hypocaloric states, even without looking at other stressors, our thyroid is going to get negatively adjusted by this. Mm-hmm. Now we also have things like, um, I mean, just hunger cues leptin and grenlin are two hunger hormones. They are influenced by things like inflammation. They are influenced by things like our neurotransmitters. And now if those are also getting messed up, because they are also related to our sex hormones. So you get this clusterfuck of stuff happening. And women, it's not to say that we're more susceptible to it. It just means that we have to be a lot more careful and we have to be managing it in an appropriate fashion. I think that All too often, I've noticed, and I mean, I've grown up in the industry. I started in it when I was fifteen. I'm thirty now. I've I've seen a seen a lot of stuff, and that Mm -hmm. for women, it's almost like this, um, almost like this uh, positive status to not have your period as a competitor. It's like, oh, I'm lean enough, and I'm like, no, (laughs) that's not the case at all. Not a good thing. (laughs) No, and and it's not the case at all. Leanness does not automatically equate to an, ovulator, it's called an ovulatory or, or no ovulation cycle, or mm-hmm. a complete absence of even menses, which is amenorrhea. It is a state of stress. So it's your body's ability and capacity to manage stress. You can have high body comp and have yeah. been on an ovulatory cycle. You okay. can have, you know, sleep disturbances. And so that really, when it comes to women, really, really important.
0: Okay. I just want to take mm-hmm. a, a step back though, because, yeah. okay, prep is a stressor. But Mm -hmm. I I don't see a way around it. Like, it's like, I mean, uh, we're, we're saying you're going to have issues because you're stressed, Mm -hmm. but that's the nature of the game. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't don't know how to get through. I don't know. Nobody's ever taught me how to get through a prep without Mm -hmm. the stress. Mm -hmm. So are are we just saying to women, look, this is going to happen and you're going to have to deal with it. And sorry, that's the case. Or is there a way to get through it with, by (sighs) reducing stress?
1: Yeah. So I guess first and foremost, health, let's just call it health and performance, right? And you got right. performance, which is prep, you've got health. Yeah. Again, I use a lot of metaphors and examples, but they usually make sense if you hang in there with me. Okay. So okay. have you ever seen a teeter-totter yeah. where two people have been just like this, perfectly balanced? There's no wiggle, they are just sitting perfectly balanced.
0: No, I've never seen it.
1: (laughs) It always goes like this. Yeah, one way or another. if you have two people that are evenly weighted, Mm -hmm. it is always going to go like this. And that is health and performance. You're never going to have them balanced with each other. Okay. And if you do, you're only going to disservice the athlete because either you're going to make them unhealthy or you're going to make them shit the bed at performance.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: So, I think acknowledging that is, is your first and foremost step is that we can, and again, this is being a conscious competitor. Yeah. You can acknowledge that you are going into the state of heightened stress.
0: Okay. And so, but, mm-hmm. sorry, I just want, okay, so yeah. fine. So basically you're saying that we have to accept it, but yeah, what does that mean for the woman mm-hmm. that finishes a show and now has body image issues mm-hmm. and has developed an eating disorder mm-hmm. and how do they get mm-hmm. through that part?
1: Well, again, that goes back to, as I mentioned before, it's building that foundation first. It's maintaining that. And then it's also knowing that you can't be there forever, which a lot of women do. But again, a different topic. Um, what do you do now? You're, you're post-prep state. So you're rebuilding. That mm-hmm. tornado has come through. It's decimated your house.
0: Yeah. You
1: are building from the ground up. Okay. So I think that when first and foremost, it is highly debated, but should women that have body image issues even compete in the first place? I don't know. I can't answer that as a woman that has body image issues. Yeah. However, what I can say is that there are certain types of coping mechanisms and also certain, I think um, it's almost like putting tools in your toolbox to help you be able to rebuild better, whether that is seeing a therapist or seeing a, a licensed like clinical um, psychologist to help you through these things. But that alone is not going to be enough to help you, you know, get healthy after prep. Yeah. So For example, if you are eating in a hypocaloric state, all of a sudden eating, you know, an everyday diet is probably not going to do you well. You got to ease and transition, just like stopping training. I mean, I call it like the post prep syndrome where competitors will get off stage. They'll eat like an asshole for a few days. They'll stop all of their drugs. They won't taper off. They'll stop their supplements and they might train twice in the week after the show, if that.
0: I'm laughing because I've done that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So it's easing out of these things, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, when in drug, kind of the drug world, it's called titrating or titrating yeah. your medication. And yeah. we have to do the same when it comes to prep. I mean, there's certain decisions that have to be made. If you've got somebody that say comes to you as a coach and they're on a gauntlet of things that are just really stupid, yeah. you're not going to just pull that rug out from underneath them, hopefully, mm-hmm. because their body might not know. You might have to make certain decisions, such as for an individual, like a female, Maybe she's on T3, but she's also on a shit ton of androgens and some anti estrogens. She's yeah. going to make an executive decision of what am I going to do first? Yeah. I know if I pull that rug out and I know if she's been eating like an asshole and she's got all these other things. If I pull that T3 out right away and her body comp goes up, all of a sudden that androgen insensitive, or not androgen, uh, hyperandrogen state and insulin resistance is just going to get elevated. It's just, it's going to go into yeah. a cycle that is going to be hard to fix. And so, sure. These decisions have to be made, just like with food. If somebody comes to you and they're already in a hypocaloric state, you know, you need to add food back in.
0: Yeah. But so you're saying,
1: how are we going to do that?
0: So it sounds like you're saying that we should be paying more attention. The way I look at it, it's like mm-hmm. we, we pay loads of attention to, okay, I'm 12 weeks out. What am I going to do? And it's mm-hmm. like, you have this whole plan and it's all set up mm-hmm. and it's almost like post show is an afterthought. Cause mm-hmm. they'll, they'll message their coach if, if they even message their yep. coach, they'll message their coach and say, okay, what do I do now? And the coach will be like, well, yep. just, it's kind of mm-hmm. like a, a bullshit answer. It's not yep. really as set up and as planned as the first, yeah. as before the show. Yeah.
2: So what Absolutely. you're saying, so
0: what I think what you're saying is we need, the coaches need to be held more responsible mm-hmm. to setting up a post-show plan as they mm-hmm. do to the pre-show plan.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's, and that's the solution. Absolutely. Post prep is always, in my opinion, has been the most important period of time, because mm-hmm. that is where we can restore kind of the damage per se of what we've just induced. It's mm-hmm. no different than like, if you're going on vacation, you might not book your flight home right away. Hope Some people do, though, they book a return flight when they book their um, okay. departure. But even if you don't, you know, eventually you have to go home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you
1: know, the steps it's going to take to get you home. That's right. Prep is no different. We have to return ourselves to a physiological baseline. And what I see a lot of is that when individuals have come to me for consulting, for example, they're so far removed from a physiological baseline because they're saying a post prep state, they've tried to hold on to whatever it might be, certain protocols, certain, uh, you know, just body compositions that we have to take that so slow yeah. And then we also have to restore because when they started prep, they weren't at a baseline to begin with. Yeah. And so yeah. for some individuals, like there is no time frame on this, some individuals, it can take quite a while for them yeah. to create homeostasis. But the beautiful thing is, is that next time they want to prep, it is going to be so much easier because when we have physiological function, the way we look or we, the way we want to look, our physiological form will follow every time. When we don't have it, it is a hell of a lot harder to do something like lose fat. Now you can use drugs only so far to try to fool that. Yeah, But eventually that card castle is going to fall because you don't have the foundation in place.
0: So I like the, I like what you're saying a lot because there's two things I'm getting from it. And one is you're not saying don't prep. It's horrible. And you guys are girls. You're saying just understand where you're going, set yourself up Mm -hmm. for it, get through it, but then also have a great plan for afterwards. Um, and the second thing I'm getting from it is, and I feel like this is actually the more important point because what I see happening in the industry more often than not is girls just want to keep competing. And I feel like it's not even because I don't even know sometimes if it's because, and I I shouldn't say just girls guys Mm -hmm. do it too, but I, 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 I don't know sometimes if they love bodybuilding or they love the attention. Yeah. Because they don't, it's like you said, sometimes to reset your body, it could take up to a year, it could take two years, depending on how much damage was done. Mm -hmm. And um, some of these people just want to do a show and then they're like, get out of stage and they have that post-show depression Mm -hmm. and they start looking for another show to do. And it just kind of makes them worse and worse and worse. And they don't ever take the time to get back to zero.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, okay. And that
1: post-show depression can be from so many different sources too. I mean, even just thinking about that, Depression can be a neurochemical imbalance, but it doesn't just necessarily happen from, you know, certain pre-existing states. It can be induced through certain drug states. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that drugs have an, an hugely important role on our neurotransmitters, on our brain. We also know that something like nutrient status too. If somebody is say not digesting their food and they're in a nutrient deficiency state, especially for some of the critical ones, Mm. and then those same nutrients have been leached through the use of certain drugs, particularly, for example, let's say, anabolic androgenic orals, they don't have any freaking energy to do anything. And so, yeah, it's going to leave them feeling worthless. It's going to leave them feeling just absolutely gutted because they can't even get off the couch to train. And so I think when we think about any of these kind of post- Prep manifestations or states, they are always going to be the sum of all factors. And so when we look at trying to recover, that's where, in my mind, we can manage performance and we can manage our health. We can't just go like, you know, these fixes, those fixes don't exist and they're going to be individual for everybody. But there are some basic, I, I think almost you can think of them as like fundamental ground rules per se that you can do not only when you're in prep, but after prep, or just make sure like, you know, do your audit and be like, Hey, did I sleep last night? Yeah. If I didn't, why not? And mm-hmm. if this is going to be something, cause it's, you know, the one offs don't get us in trouble. It's when that one off becomes chronic and it's happening yeah. over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. so something like that, because we know the impact that has on our health, can have hugely important consequences for our health and well-being, And so by just making sure something like that's in check or you prioritize it, you know, I, I always laugh. I'm like, when people get up after, you know, they had a rough night of sleep, they've had two hours, then they get up and do their cardio and I'm like, what the fuck? I'd rather, would have rather you slept in. <laughs> that's,
0: that's me again. <laughs> that's me again. I can't help it. Um, okay. So, I think we covered that. Well, I wanted I wanted to get into, I know there's so much more we can get into, but I wanted to kind mm-hmm. of change topics to blood work mm-hmm. because I feel like blood work is such a confusing thing when I thought mm-hmm. I had a grasp on it and I really have no grasp on it. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, because ever since I started bodybuilding, I've been an advocate of getting your blood work done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's important to get it done, you know, two or three times a year, blah, blah, blah. But it just, every time I get it done, it just opens up more questions. Mm-hmm. So people ask me what should you get, what should you get checked. And I mm-hmm. always say, you know, thyroid, blood sugar, cholesterol, liver, mm-hmm. kidney, you know, the basics, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But the tests they do, I feel like aren't extensive enough. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like their baseline is like a normal 200 pound male. Mm-hmm. So we'll use me as an example. So if, <laughs> I, if I go in at 280 mm-hmm. pounds and I get my blood work mm-hmm. done and um let's say I'll give you like a, a real scenario. Mm-hmm. So I go in and my creatinine level is not where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. It's too high. Mm-hmm. But then I start talking to other people and they're like, well, they didn't check this marker and that marker mm-hmm. and you weigh 280 pounds. So this doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you're dying. It just means mm-hmm. that they didn't check thoroughly enough.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So long question short, how do we get around these mm-hmm. kind of things? How do we, because the, the, the normal everyday doctor yeah. doesn't seem to know somebody like me and what I'm yeah. supposed to get checked and what yeah. you understand what I mean?
1: Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I I thought this question might be coming today.
0: So why? why? <laughs> uh,
1: I just, because it's been something that I've been asked to talk about a lot lately on different types of like podcasts or events that I've spoken at. And I think mm-hmm. it's because people are getting more of a consciousness about how shitty serum lab testing is on its own yeah. as well as, as a marker. And I think mm-hmm. so just a couple things here is that, there are many different factors that are going to influence the accuracy of sorts of somebody's lab work. So if you've just trained legs, yeah. say Wednesday and today's Thursday and you go get your labs done, your yeah, that, CK levels are going to be
0: yeah. freaking high. That I know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. So something like that, or for a female ovulation, if she's getting her blood, like blood work done in the first half of her cycle, her progesterone is going to be low because okay. she hasn't ovulated yet right? So there are certain factors like that. Now, other things too, that we have to consider are age, race, Mm -hmm. athletic status, sex. These are all things that impact our blood ranges that we use. Unfortunately, with conventional lab testing, they don't consider these. These are major flaws. I mean, you think about research, we look at certain flaws in our research studies. If we want to say measure Z, and we're looking at x and we're measuring with y mm-hmm. then we have to before we can even enter an experiment think about all the biases think about all the things that you know variables that could influence it with lab work it's kind of seen as this gold standard yeah. but it's not at all so w- reference ranges are often way too broad they're not personalized and they're also changing and so the blood ranged averages get kind of reassigned to the norms and standards of the population. Right now we have an incredibly unhealthy population. So realistically, I don't want my thyroid hormone to be in line with the population because that's unhealthy. And so that's, I mean, that's one factor. Another one is that we're not using um, standardized reference ranges either. And in Canada, if you go to life labs, it is going to be a very different range than somebody who say goes to quest diagnostics Mm -hmm. um, in the States. And but so
0: only we, because the unit of measure is different?
1: Well, no. Actually, the ranges differ from lab to lab, state to state, oh, okay. country to country. So okay. if you actually start to lay out the, the ranges, you're seeing there are some, some quite a big differences in these ranges. Um, and also, your access to labs, too. I mean, we're both Canadian here. It's really hard to get labs in Canada. And yeah. we don't have the options for um, out-of-pocket as they do I, in the States. That They're few and far between. I mm-hmm. actually
0: get, I actually get them done pretty easily. You are lucky and you are a male. <laughs> if oh, you, you are a female,
1: it is going to be incredibly hard. Why would that be, labs. why
0: would that be harder?
1: Um, uh, without going into massive tirade of big pharma, uh, women yeah, often, look- it gets associated with reproductive function issues. So if you go oh, into the doctor okay. and you say, I am having, you know, I would like to get my labs done." Well, why say you have an irregular period? I have a regular period. Okay. Here's birth control.
0: Oh, they don't, they just don't. Okay. I see what you're saying. They would yeah. rather just, they would rather just push the prescribe.
1: Exactly. Yeah, than actually yeah. do testing when and the reality testing is actually pretty cheap. If you look at the flat rate of testing, yeah. it's pretty cheap to get things done. I mean, CBCs, I think it, they're like $7 that that's what the company is paying, but you can pay upwards of a mm-hmm. lot for that. Um, and so a lot of times tests are ran only by medical necessity. And insurance companies are helping to dictate this. A good example is like TSH Um, for thyroid. Often TSH will only be ran if you don't get in a certain range, then T4 will be ran and then possibly T3. Even patients that are on thyroid replacement, even patients with thyroid disorders have issues getting the proper testing. And so now we have this this kind of this world that's insurance-based. And so the other thing too is that we have to look at our lab work in context and so okay. our hormones are fluctuating i mean testosterone is higher in the morning so yeah. if you go in and you get your labs done in the afternoon then yeah your testosterone levels are going to be different
0: but can i can i mm-hmm. interrupt you for a minute so mm-hmm. my my basis for it is not i know some people care mm-hmm. about their testosterone level, like i want to make sure my yeah. test test is real so i gotta go check <coughs> yeah I, i'm not i'm not in that vein yeah. of thinking uh, i'm more in the sense of. I want to bodybuild. I want to bodybuild mm. for 30 years
2: yeah.
0: and I want to make sure I don't die doing it. Yeah. So I want to make sure all my levels are okay. Now, when I go to yeah. the doctor and the doctor says your GFR is low, but he hasn't done mm. any other testing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What I want to know is what can somebody ask yeah. or like what other tests can people mm. ask for or who can they see? Mm-hmm. Like, do you have yeah. reference people that can actually read their blood work? Cause yeah. I know some coaches read blood work. They don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. And I know doctors look at blood work, but they also don't really aren't specific enough. So where do we go? Like, what do we do? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And I have some answers for you, but not all the answers because that is an you ever evolving. I, that's an ever evolving answers. thing. Yeah. I mean, our body is constantly changing and we're constantly <laughs> learning new yeah. things. And, you know, certain markers that we once thought were really important, we're now realizing maybe aren't. Okay. Um, I think so. One of the big things is to do your own assessment on the side. Okay, so whenever you get labs done, I recommend for people to also be tracking their, you know, basic health markers. There's apps that do this. I mean, SIPL is one of them, but more simple than that, just get a date book, write down when your training is, write down if there's say some type of really stressful event, say you had about a bout of diarrhea, just write it down, chart it, make your own data, because okay. at the end of the day, we're using standardized methods to measure a very unstandardized thing. Yeah, And so, I mean, crap. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to an athlete and they can't even freaking remember what cycle they were on last, how long they were on it, when they started it, what their dosing was. So, yeah. get your basis covered, chart mm-hmm. your own data. Um, it is something that's so simple. But when we are looking at analyzing lab work, it does really help to put things in context. So, uh, I mean, a great example of this is that if you are. Um, getting, say you're getting your basic blood chemistry done. So your CBC done every six months or every four months Mm -hmm. and you are male and you went from being never touching, um, I mean, an anabolic before to then going on an anabolic. Yeah. Well, your red blood cell count is going to be different just based off of that. Now, if you don't tell your doctor that because of the stigma around anabolics, they're going to think that you seriously have something wrong and probably send you to a hematologist. When in reality, high testosterone levels are going to cause an increase in red blood
0: cell count. Okay, that actually brings a point. Sorry, Mm -hmm. (laughs) sorry I keep interrupting you. I just said, you keep popping up with new questions. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so is that why my doctor is familiar with uh, anabolics and he knows Mm -hmm. what I do and we're very open with everything I'm doing. Yeah. And he seems very nonchalant about Mm -hmm. my blood work. Mm Mm-hmm. Where when I look at it, I panic because I'm mm-hmm. like, I know what it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. but again, those are standardized numbers, or not. Mm-hmm. So is he right? Well, I, I don't know if you know he's right, but I know that I'm not but, saying he's right. I'm uh, saying he could be. He I'm could saying be. is that yeah. is that is that probably more of the reason yeah. for the nonchalant behaviors that he knows all the things I'm doing, and he knows how big I am, and he knows all these things. Yeah,
1: very very well possible. I mean, there's sometimes it's funny because there's sometimes that I think and I've, I've experienced this with certain coaches because I work with a lot of coaches. Like I coach coaches kind of thing. Yeah. And that people come to me with this idea of like, Oh my God, this is what this range needs to be. And I'm like, Hey, wait a second. You yeah. are dealing with somebody who's not normal at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're on even um, say prescription dose, TRT, your FSH, LH, all of those things might be different and they might be off. And that's where, getting your own baseline is really important. And also looking at how it changes with all of these other contextual factors. So if somebody comes to me and let's say their liver values are all fucked up now, I might have a reason, you know, a very realistic, um, acute reason for why this might be the case. For example, they were on a dose of antibiotics. Okay, Okay. That makes sense. That doesn't make it Okay. Yeah, but it makes it make sense. It gives us now something to work with to better be able to repair, restore, and regain function. Now, there are certain types of things though that might always be elevated. It's 280 pound man, his CK levels are probably always going to be elevated compared to the norm. Now, if we look at those levels though, with his kidney function as well, If we look at those levels with, say, uric acid and a bunch of these other um, values, and we track them, I think one of the things that gets um, forgotten when it comes to lab work is at the end of the day, it's data. And our life, it's like in research, what we call a longitudinal study, which means we're doing it over the course of our life. So doing labs every six months might be too long of an interval to actually get an accurate data sample. Um, okay. and so there are times that I even recommend people that say you are in an off season, your maybe your protocols for both training diet and ergogenics are relatively mild. We'll utilize that say three months time to get a nice lovely sample of baseline.
0: So we go every month kind of thing. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Now you can see and you know you can see what happens when you are now, say, in prep mm-hmm. and start to see these subtle differences. At the end of the day, though, this data set is gonna be built off of you. Is it going to be for some people expensive? Probably. Mm -hmm. But could it be incredibly vital, not only to your success as an athlete, but your success as a human? Most likely. Um, But labs alone aren't kind of this like gold standard seal. There are other types of testing as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. you've got serum, which is blood work is only one. There's different types of urinary testing. Uh, You mean there's crap. Lab testing is growing so fast. You go into targets in the States now, and you can get like capillary blood for certain types of ailments. Now, the verdict is still out on the accuracy of that. Mm-hmm. I recommend if people are going that route to do some research and, you know, compare that type of finger prick testing to the actual serum testing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, there's stool testing. There is blood gas testing. So there is a lot of different types of testing.
2: Okay.
1: I'll be honest, though. I rarely tell people right away to get labs done.
0: What do you, what? okay, that actually brings Mm -hmm. me to the question I was thinking of is, does your, remember you were talking about your Mm -hmm. baseline for health and making a diary? Yeah. Let's say you do that. Let's say you check your, you know, my sleep is good. My Mm -hmm. eating is good. My digestion is good. My Mm -hmm. mood is good. Like, Mm -hmm. let's say you check off all the boxes.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Does that mean you're healthy? Like if you're not, I get, (laughs) I know, I don't want, I don't want you to get in trouble. So I'm not asking you to make a a blanket statement, but what I'm asking is because you're saying blood work is not the gold standard and there's so Mm -hmm. many tests and all this, Mm -hmm. are we better off looking at our own Mm -hmm. individual physiques Mm -hmm. and bodies and health and, and Mm -hmm. checking all the markers ourselves Mm -hmm. and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, everything feels great. Mm -hmm. I don't feel any ailments. I don't, Mm -hmm. everything is clicking like it should be. Mm -hmm. That probably means I'm okay. Like, is that a, is that an irrational thought to have?
1: I think it's rationally irrational. I think that on first basis that, yeah, I mean, in all accounts, it might mean that you're healthy. However, we have to then put that in context. If you're running something, okay, Okay. so this is a great example of why I love network pharmacology. If you are running, let's just say low dose Anabar, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: we know there are going to be certain physiological implications for that. it is going to cause certain nutrients to get leached just by way of how that drug gets metabolized. We know it's going to have an implication for your liver. Mm -hmm. It could also throw off your sex hormones, especially for women. So we know that there is an effect that that drug is going to have a physiological effect. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's not registering any red flags on your lab work, it doesn't mean that those effects aren't happening. They are they just might be happening at what would be considered like in medicine, a subacute level, mm-hmm. or there could be, I mean, your ranges for your labs might be totally off, or you're somebody that might have low levels of something and that drug just elevates you into more of a normative range. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of different scenarios that could um, help to determine
2: mm-hmm.
1: what would be healthy or not. The other thing too is, is that with, with labs, it's only one piece of a big puzzle. Mm -hmm. If you're doing all these things, say you're sleeping, you're sleeping, you're pooping, you're, you know, you've got a good quality of life, training's going awesome, but you just feel like shit. Yeah. Listen to that inner voice. Mm -hmm. Don't ignore it.
0: But my worry is the opposite Mm -hmm. is what if everything, like my worry is the guy who everything is clicking like clockwork, Mm -hmm. feels Mm -hmm. amazing, and then he dies of a heart Mm -hmm. attack in a week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's my worry is how does Mm -hmm. that guy find out? Mm Mm-hmm if all these tests yeah. are not really, really accurate, yeah. how do we yes. find it? You know what I mean? And it, yeah. I think what I've gathered from what we're talking about yeah. is really the only way to tell is very frequent blood tests over a short blood. period of time and to get a data.
1: Yeah. Sample. Blood tests. But again, like going back to the different types of tests, there are say genetic testing that you can do for, heart disease. Does that mean you're going to have heart disease? Does that mean you're going to drop dead tomorrow? No. But we look at, again, the sum of all factors. If you have that gene, if you are also have some other lab values for, you know, cardiac dysfunction that might be off, if -hmm. you're also running certain compounds, even if it's say a stimulant, you're feeling good because the stimulant is making you feel good. So, but right. So we have to put things in context. We have to be, again, realistic with what we're doing and what we're putting into our bodies Mm -hmm. and even if you do that, that doesn't mean that that's your get out of jail card free. Like, yeah. I am not going to have a heart attack. We don't
0: know. Medicine just, is not perfect. We're just making educated guesses.
1: Exactly. Right. exactly and right. at the end of the day, typically speaking, like when you look at, um, it's so uh, a study just came across my, my desk this past weekend. Of, uh, it was an awful title about how anabolics are killing, killed this male. It was like a 32 year old male died of a heart attack. Now, yeah. of course, anabolics are going to get blamed for it. But when you yeah. start to read it, he was on a lot of different stimulants. He was on T3, the clen. There was also the anabolics. And then there was also a pre-existing congenital heart condition. Yeah. So it's going to be the sum of all factors. Sure. We don't know that there could even be some other things in there too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just basic. They never checked his cholesterol um, post So we don't know if that also... was an issue. We don't know if he had like thickened arterial plaque. Didn't talk about that. So there's going to be always the sum of all factors. I think in bodybuilding, again, not to, not to criticize you. I want to challenge your thinking Mm -hmm. that that reductionist approach and thinking that blood work is all we need is very narrow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, and I'm not saying I agree with you. I just, Mm -hmm. no one's told me Mm -hmm. in other way. And I think absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. I have to say, like, a couple of years ago, I was at a – where was I at? Elite FTS. Yeah. Uh, speaking at their Performance Summit. And all of a sudden, on the screen, I put the – I mean, it's a – essentially, it's like a poop scale that okay. uh, gastroenterologists use. It's like a scale, and it shows you poop consistencies, and then it ranks it, okay? Yeah. So, all of a sudden, all these – I was about 200 male strength coaches were, like, jaw on the ground, like <laughs> – like, what is she showing me?
0: This is the base. This is how you tell if you're healthy.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and I was, cause I was talking about the fact that research has demonstrated that, um, exercise, especially in uh, an acute higher training phase has, uh, an impact on our gastric motility. And so our, that's our ability to digest food, but also move through, move through yeah, yeah. food a yeah. digestion and actually excrete it. Um, yeah. And it also has some issues. I mean, potentially people can be more prone to something like constipation um, because also dehydration, there's a bunch of different elements that get mixed in. And I was talking about how it's a relatively simple thing that you can get your athletes to track. You don't even need to tell know what their poop is every day, but yeah. you can just say like, Hey, keep an eye out. Here's what you're looking for. Cause that's a lot of times people come to me and they go like, well, what am I looking for here? Yeah. Um, and so giving these, the, there are other tools and scales. And now, again, it doesn't mean that these are perfect.
2: Yeah, No
1: marker is perfect because every body is different,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: they, in conjunction can help for women taking your basal temperature. I mean, I, I preach this because it can help to tell whether or not somebody is ovulating.
2: Okay.
1: If they're ovulating, we know that then they're making progesterone.
2: Mm-hmm. That is a
1: great first start for okay. people. And it's, I mean, it's relatively free. You just have to buy yourself a thermometer and something to you know whether it's an app or a date book or whatever to track it Mm uh another thing i recommend for for individuals too is to to take pictures um i've i've talked about this for years now for women in particular if they're running certain compounds that have a risk of say increased hair growth or acne it's really hard to see when your blinders are on
0: when it's happening yeah while you're in it yeah yeah so
1: if you're taking a picture every week it's like part of prep, almost like the, the, the apostles of prep is to take your pictures every week and send it yeah. to your coach. Yeah. Well, why aren't we doing that for our health too? Yeah. You know, why well, are I we think, using that as an opportunity to, to check in about things like sleep?
0: Because I think, well, maybe sleep. I think a lot of people don't mm-hmm. want to know. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people, yeah. I think a lot of people just don't want to know. Yeah. And, and because knowing means you have to change course mm-hmm. and a lot of people yeah. don't want to change course.
1: Yeah. Um, but ignorance isn't, Plus ignorance is risk. And when we are oh. ignorant to these things, we're increasing our risk.
0: You're a hundred percent right. I, I, ignorance was bliss for me mm-hmm. for a long time. And then mm-hmm. I hit 35, I'm 40 now, 41 now.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then when I hit 35, I was like, Oh shit. I was like, I think I was doing some stuff I shouldn't have been doing. Mm-hmm. So it kind of woke me up to, and that's why I've been kind of trying to dive deeper into finding out new ways to stay healthy and stay active. Mm-hmm um i want to get into before i mm-hmm. let you go because we've been on for mm-hmm. a while so i, I apologize for keeping oh, you. it's
1: all good i blocked um, off today i saw good. <laughs> okay.
0: i just i i knew this was going to happen i knew you were going to start talking and i'm like okay i have a thousand questions now um but i wanted to get into anabolics before i let you yeah. go because that's everybody's you know everybody wants to know right so uh-huh. i figured why not, why not talk to somebody who knows
2: mm-hmm. so
0: there are some common uh things there's some newer things that have come up recently mm-hmm. in, in, in the world of anabolics for me that I want to mm-hmm. ask you about. So mm-hmm. one is uh, timing. So mm-hmm. recently I've been told that doing smaller amounts more often is mm-hmm. healthier for the body than doing larger doses mm-hmm. in fewer shots.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that something you can attest to or is that a myth or where are we with mm-hmm. that?
1: First and foremost, there's just not enough data out there to tell any conclusive answer to it. So, is
0: is there a guess
1: uh,
0: or or (laughs) a theory?
1: Well, hypothetically speaking, the human body, whether it's male or female, has hormone levels that change throughout the day and change throughout certain, um, even seasonal. There's a lot of different influences that cause our hormones. I mean, we've got intra-individual variability, which means that certain certain things that can happen internal to our body and external to our body will change in individual's levels of hormones. And so testosterone, for example, higher in the morning, it drops down over the course of the day. So having a stable hormone level for some people might potentially create more of a, a stable baseline in particular If they are, say, running a low dose of therapeutic TRT, uh, it's going to mimic what their body would actually be doing. Now, I question, though, if we're doing super physiological dosing, Mm -hmm. you're already not doing something that your body's comfortable with. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's 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 a room to consider the possible pros and cons to that. Yeah. Um, The reason why I'm kind of jumping around the answer mm-hmm. is because there simply isn't one.
0: Yeah. And I
1: think that, I mean, in theory, sure.
0: Can I Having, specify the, can I specify the mm-hmm. question? Can I make it yeah. like, narrow you it can, down a bit? Sure. So let's say I'm doing 50 milligrams of probe,
1: mm-hmm.
0: prob, test propanate six times a week.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. equaling 300 milligrams mm-hmm. or I'm doing 300 milligrams of mm-hmm. testosterone and anthate once a week. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm is either one healthier or is it the mm-hmm. same thing? Because some people would say mm-hmm. the long acting ester is better because you're not getting any fluctuations mm-hmm. in your testosterone mm-hmm. levels. And some people would say the 50 milligrams a day is better because you're going to absorb more of it in a better way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you, is so, there an answer to that? or Well,
1: I mean, again, it goes, because it goes off the individual. Um, okay. I can say from, from consulting with different individuals that are a wide range of athletes and non-athletes that certain individuals prefer doing microdosing,
2: okay.
1: um, that that makes them feel good, their lab work is okay, okay, and that that is the best protocol for them. I know other people that use long esters, but they do, don't do a seven-day cycle of them. They do yeah. actually do it more condensed, so three to four days, sometimes sure. five. Um, and that they will go off of how they feel when they start to feel like a little bit of like, not so great, then they'll do their shot again. So there's that method too. Okay. Um, I think that again, going back to kind of being conscious about this, it has to be what works for the individual. If you're somebody that even in theory, if all things say that doing micro dosing is going to be best on paper, if it just doesn't work for you,
0: yeah, roll with it. When you say doesn't work, you mean if it doesn't feel good or if you mean you just don't if want to it do that? Many?
1: No, if it I mean, say it do, just, you just don't feel great doing it yeah. or maybe you're doing once every other day and you feel great that way too.
0: So I've been right? trying.
1: It, it comes to the individual.
0: I tried both myself. Mm-hmm. I actually feel a lot better just doing 50 milligrams because right now I'm on a, mm-hmm. a little above TRT. Mm-hmm. I'm doing about 300 milligrams a week. Yeah. And I found that doing 50 milligrams a day feels mm-hmm. great. Like yeah. I feel, I feel no fluctuations. My mood yeah. is really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like doing the shot every day, but it feels mm-hmm. better. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: absolutely. And if that's the case, then, then roll with it, but also know that there's always going to be room to play. There's always going to be room to say like, Hey, let me try it every other day for a set duration of time. Like I think a lot of times when goes. people do experiments, they go like, I don't feel good. I'm pulling the plug. It's like, well, no. <laughs> give give yourself like say three to four weeks. Yeah. Um, and and go with it and see how you feel. I, I mean, an easy example. I know it's not an anabolic example, but thyroid hormone. Yeah. Recent research has suggested that taking say T3 a higher dose at night is actually better or more in line with your circadian. However, patients have said. Hey, I feel like shit when I do that. I have been taking it first thing in the morning, a higher dose first thing in the morning, and then a dose again at night um, because thyroid is, is very, I mean, T3 is very quick acting, but taking that higher dose at night, I don't feel good in the morning Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that's now it's, it's counter to the most recent kind of science on the dosing. And so even with anabolics, I mean, there are things that when you look at something like the, 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 Duration of I mean the time of the ester, or you know, if you're doing injectable, if you're going with your circadian, if you're going with somebody's training, whatever it might be, you can look at all these different variables. But if it's just not working for that individual, that's when as a as a practitioner, coach, consultant, bro, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. needs to then go like, okay, I have to individualize this for the person. You know, Um,
0: it's it's crazy that you said that. Now that I think about it, I've been working with John Meadows for. Since 2014.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I always wondered why, and I hope he's not watching this because he might take offense to it, but I always wondered why he was so wishy-washy. Yeah. I always wanted a coach to just be like, look, this is what you got to do. Yeah. This is When you got to do it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And John's always been the kind of coach who's like, well, if it feels better, do it. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? This guy yeah. can't just tell me what to do.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And
0: uh, now I kind of, I'm, I'm starting to yeah. understand why is it's yeah. like you said, it's very individual.
1: There's a, there's a great quote. It's actually not for physiology. It's more for psychology, but it's rigidity in the face of complexity is toxic, which okay. means that we can't be rigid
2: mm-hmm.
1: when we're dealing with a complex state or environment because it's ultimately going to be, um, be dangerous or hazardous. It's no different when it comes to medicine and where medicine is fucked up is that we've taken incredibly standardized protocols for treatment, for symptomology, for prognosis, for testing, and we've tried to apply it to an entire populace, not taking into an account even something like, say, somebody's genetic background, somebody's uh, athletic status. Um, And so for me, medicine, and this is the thing with medicine, we've come a long way. We still don't know a hell of a lot. And what we're getting when you go into the doctor's office is not what's happening on the front lines of research. There's something called translational medicine, and it can take up to 20 years or even more for mm. you to get that research in your doctor's office.
2: That's
3: and
1: right. so when we look at the, the front line, that's why like, I I mean I love systems biology, systems pharmacology. It is more of that front line. But the other day, I, I mean, a study came in and I was like, oh my God, my whole, this is what I've been learning for the last three years and applying. And you're now telling me that there's something else to to take in or to add out or do whatever, but that's the human body. It's not, it's not just, you know, we're not just skin and organs and muscles and that's it. That's all. It is really complicated. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you apply a generalizing statement, you have to understand that that is ultimately damning.
0: Yeah. There are,
1: very few times that I will give a generalizing statement.
0: Yeah, no, you're right. You know, it's kind of like, um, like GH is a good example because mm-hmm. a lot of people say, "Well, you should take GH in the morning; it's better." Blah blah, blah. reduce your cortisol.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I only like taking it taking it at night. Yeah, I find when I take it at night, I feel better and I feel like it's making a difference. So, mm-hmm. is that one of those individual things, where you can yeah. just kind of did your own testing?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's where I think it comes down to the individual. Whatever. Optimal might not be practical. I see. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's say fasted cardio. There's a great propensity in, in bodybuilding to do fasted
0: morning cardio. I love fasted cardio. Um, You're telling me it's no good?
1: <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not telling it's no good. I mean, research has suggested otherwise. However, yeah. if that works for that individual, and my whole thing is like, do no harm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if it's not doing any harm, yeah. then it can possibly be justified. Now, does that mean it's going to be that way forever? Maybe not. It goes back to our contest prep example, mm-hmm. right? It, you know what you're doing is working for you for now based off your yeah. goal in your given context, yeah. but go back and reevaluate, say six months from now, you know, even if you put in your date book, be like, I'm going to set aside an afternoon to go over my health and just to check in with myself. Yeah. You know, you take your car in for a tune up. Yeah. No, so I get check. get Yeah. And I think that that, when it comes down to even dosing protocols, it's like, I've, I've talked to many of people over the years and I'm like, well, why are you doing this? Mm -hmm. They can't tell me. Yeah. And I have talked to other people that I might not agree, but they can tell me and it makes sense for them. And physiologically, I'm like, okay, it's not the worst thing. Mm -hmm. And you feel good. You got, I mean, we're not, we're not doing any harm. Now I don't like that when uneducated people do this, and I'm not saying that I am the end all be all. However, I have a little bit more background yeah. to be able to help somebody weave through these certain decisions yeah. that might be made clinically. And I also always refer out to people that are even smarter than I am uh, at a certain topic when I don't know, and also to help make these kind of guidelines. Anabolics is a cesspit of just grossness in mm-hmm. both the bro world and in the research world. There yeah. is research out there. There's research that's shitty and there's yeah. research that's okay. There's research within pharmacology that's actually looking more at the the dynamics and that stuff is it's pretty good because it's not really looking at the subject. So it's not bad. Mm-hmm. When we look at the stuff that's looking at specific groups of cohorts like men, typically it's like anabolics are bad, they're killing you. However, you look at the TRT research and it's not saying the same stuff. So yeah. it is, when it comes to the research, really mixed. And that's the same thing when it comes to coaches. I mean, John Meadows, I can say nothing bad about that man because mm-hmm. I, I mean, he rescued me back in like 20, 2009 yeah. from my own bullshit. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, there are great coaches like him and there's yeah. a lot of really bad coaches and there are even good coaches that on certain subjects, they might not be very knowledgeable
2: yeah.
1: or they have room to grow. Mm-hmm. And they have room to advance their own knowledge because knowledge is not static, it is always evolving. it yeah. is so dynamic.
0: I was actually going to ask you about coaches I'm glad mm-hmm. we tu- glad you touched on that because mm-hmm. I see a lot of these girls that are doing well i shouldn 't keep singling out girls, but it just scares me so much more that are doing like mega stacks that I'm like <laughs> they look they look like bodybuilding stacks, and I'm like, this is insane you're doing bikini
2: mm-hmm. like you don't,
0: like you don't even need a lot of muscle you just have to be mm-hmm. lean and yeah. you're taking trend and fucking i i just what are if you're talking to the women mm-hmm. out there or the mm-hmm. boyfriends of women that are you know some of these some of these guys are getting their girls some of these guys are getting <laughs> their girlfriends ready for shows and they got them on these mega stacks yeah can you please just is there any drugs mm-hmm. that you think are just off limits to women or not off limits but shouldn't necessarily be used you know, unless you have a goal and you don't care about your body, like something that mm. you just can't come back from, is there something that you shouldn't be using?
1: Cam, <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm going to dovetail around that because yes and no. Okay. For every drug, there is an effect. Whether that effect is always what you want, just remember for every drug has an effect on the body. Some mm. of these are intended and some of these are unintended. Now, in women's bodies in particular, our reproductive hormones are. An incredibly complex, um, very tightly wound mechanism that likes to try to create homeostasis. Male, female alike, if you are not doing, um, let's say, a replacement dosing or something, you are inducing a hyperandrogenic state, okay. a high state of androgens. And there are implications from that. Even if that's, say, endogenously or just a natural state of high androgens, there are implications for women. And for men, but we're talking about women. So for women in a mm-hmm. hyperandrogenic state, so first and foremost, that's the that remember that. And we're not even talking about something like drug delivery, and that there's going to be other implications depending on how that route of uh, like the route of entry for that drug. So for women, in particular, you when you're inducing a state of hyperandrogens, mm-hmm. you're also inducing hyperinsulinia. So high levels of that? insulin or okay. insulin resistance,
2: Okay.
1: because they work together. Yep. Androgen excess in women, insulin resistance. And it's not just insulin resistance in like the full body. It, we have it in our skeletal muscles. We have it in our adipose tissue. You're also inducing a state of inflammation, which that has its own effects that are very multifaceted. You're also inducing low progesterone, typically speaking, because you're not ovulating when you have high levels of androgens. Mm-hmm. And then we can also look at it even, I mean, and I can go on and on and on, but then we also can look at it in an acute level. So if a female is not um, having a menses, amenorrhea, that means that she's not sloughing her lining. And yeah. if you don't slough your lining, there are potential unintended consequences of doing so, such as increased cell proliferation, which then can result in things like certain types of reproductive cancers or, um, other types of disorders of like, um, thickening and cell wall, um, just dif- dysfunctions of sorts. So cyst being one of those. And okay. so there are implications of use. Now somebody could say to me, well, you know what? My girlfriend got her labs done and she had low androgens. And so now I'm putting her on a replacement dose of anivore and I mm-hmm. can go like, cool, but there's still implications for that. Yeah right? You are still, you when we are using an oral, like an androgen uh, or like a um, anavar, pardon me, you're leaching certain nutrients. If you leach those nutrients, that has implications on your body and many different sites, because it's not just that reductionism. It's not just like, yeah. Hey, my liver enzymes are high. There's oxidative stress. You have free radical damage. You have, um, I mean, even down chain, there's, there's issues for your gallbladder. You've got issues for your Um, pancreas, you've got some potential issues also with, I mean, even, even something like in women, fuck, like bladder infections because Mm -hmm. the bladder integrity and androgens are like coupled together and estrogen also influences whether or not we can defend ourselves. And so women can have a, um, a greater risk of a UTI when they're in a low state of estrogen. And if you're giving your girlfriend Novodex to slam every morning, You've got to be aware of
0: that. Yeah. Okay. So, what you're saying is everything is going to be a risk.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I can but walk there outside. has to be. But there has mm-hmm. to
0: be things that are. Mm-hmm. There has to be. Th- okay. We, we. This goes for men and women. Of, of yeah. course. Of course, we know that we're ever going to whatever drug we're going to put into our yeah. body that's going to make our hormones fluctuate or whatever is going to is going to be a risk. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There has to be some that you think are just it's not I can't, but i
1: can't answer that because okay. i can i would then have to blanket a whole bunch of drugs and ethically i can't do that no, I um i mean at the end of the day my a lot of my research is on oral contraceptive pills okay? okay and that contains usually an estrogen and or a progesterone progesterone is kind of like a bastardized form of a synthetic progesterone molecule mm-hmm. so i can't though say that i am anti oral contraceptives because i believe in choice.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I believe that individuals need and, and should have the right to make decisions on their own. Mm-hmm. But those decisions have to be educated and they need to be aware of the risks. So okay. for me, when it comes to certain androgens, my job and why I do things like this is to educate people on the risks so they can make an informed decision. Because at the end of the day, risks are everywhere. Are sure. you going to have a greater risk though, if you're running a UGL lab and God knows what you're taking, absolutely. Your Mm. risk is going to be increased. And now for a female, that could be even more of an issue, especially if say, you think you gave your girlfriend anivore and it ended up being ball. (laughs) right? That would be a problem. Yeah. You are going to run into risks. The other thing too, when for women is that I think people think that these side effects happen like yeah. You know, like I can't, I used to scour the forums back in the day and I would read stuff on like RX muscles, femchem and you get these women that'd be like, yeah, I started to get a scratchy voice. So I knew something was wrong. And I'm like, oh no, no, like that's an end point. There's a lot of things yeah. that happened yeah. to get to that point. Hair growth. There's a lot of things that have happened to get to that point. And whether you're a male or female, there are certain things that you can do to mitigate and manage the risk. And, and this is no different with contest prep.
2: Mm-hmm. This is no
1: different. If you say to me like, Hey, I want to go, you know, I watched game changers and I want to go vegan. Mm-hmm. I might not agree with what you're doing, but I know there are certain risks mm-hmm. involved with making that decision. And my job is to offer you tools to be able to mitigate those risks. I see.
0: So you're, you're consulting, you, do you do, you do your own coaching as well as coach other coaches?
1: I do. So I do both professional consulting. Um, and then I do private or personal consulting. So Athletes come to me or, you know, not, not even just athletes, wide range of individuals have come to me over how the
0: years. How extensive is a coaching plan from Victoria mm-hmm. Felker? <laughs> <laughs> like when I pay yeah. you, when I pay you, yeah. I, I'm not sure what you charge, but yeah. when I pay you and you're my coach,
1: yeah.
0: I must be receiving like a booklet when I start. Mm-hmm. You are
1: essentially, yes, you are. Of like risks
0: and non-risks and... and...
1: Well, I think it comes down to we just, we we start off and I always start off by just talking to the person um, and, and, you know, laying it out. One of the things I always get people to do is to identify those goals. Um, And that's where I usually start with people, even if they're on something. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, what are your goals? If your goals are to be healthy late in life, well, let's look at the things that even lifestyle factors that you're doing that might not help you do that. And let's look at the things that you could be doing. And okay. let's just start there. And so I think people always think that I'm some like crazy plan and whatever, but I'm like, you know, first line for me is the basics. It okay. is the absolute plan. And then we build onto that because the thing is, is that let's just say somebody has a elevated or, um, I don't even know, a, a blood value that's throwing off. And they try to equate that to just say the drug that they're taking. Now mm-hmm. that could be, and we can look at research and find out that, yeah, the probability of that is actually statistically quite high. But then there's also all of these other things that could also contribute to that value being mm-hmm. off. I mean, a red blood cells, a great example of this. There are many different things that contribute to uh, an elevated red blood cell, including oxidative stress, nutrient deficiencies, liver health. So even if you're taking a drug that's going to increase that, Let's not just, again, pull that rug out or that card castle. Let's deal with what we can in a very basic way first, see mm-hmm. what happens, and then go into step two. Plans are never just a one-stop shop. It yeah, is yeah. an ever-unfolding thing. It's dynamic. We call it emergent mm-hmm. or an emergent behavior emer- emergent response, and that we're, we're continually modifying it. And, it. and it is something that, yeah, sure, it is going to be a little bit more involved. But I don't know about you. That's what I want yeah i don't want somebody to give me a, a blanketed generalized plan in particular because my life isn't the same as let's say your wife's life no, or course. somebody yeah. else's life down the street That's not the way the body works, mm-hmm. and our set point today is going to be different than yesterday and it's going to be different than tomorrow and so for whomever you're working with, it really does come down to um, providing an individualized service, and I recognize that that's not in everybody's reach. Um, I mean, even for myself, I go like, I'm still, I'm still doing my PhD. I don't have time. This is not my, this is my side no. gig. Um,
0: so you don't so, want, you don't want people to email you for consulting. No, they
1: they can, I have a waiting list, but, um, <laughs> I am very, I do it in a very weird way. So, um, but what I mean by that is that the, the I can give people tools to apply to themselves. I mean, a big okay. thing I always see with research is that people try to take what a research study says and apply it directly. And again, that's just not the way the body works. That's not the way the science works. And so I can give you tools that then you can build your own data Mm -hmm. and then you can apply certain ideas and concepts in an educated way to then build the most personalized plan possible. And also without you going broke because privatized testing is expensive. Yeah. And also, I mean, over supplementation, if somebody doesn't need to take something.
0: Yeah yeah it almost sounds like your goal is more to have somebody for a few months teach them and have them go off and live a better life absolutely so you're not the kind of coach who's trying to hold on to somebody for five years
1: i've never um and i always do it's no different than say you were to go to a specialist Mm -hmm. and you might see them more frequently at the beginning and then it just might be check-ins after that yeah that's the way that I work. And if somebody's in more of an acute phase, say it's a female comes to me, she's been on birth control for 10 years and wants to transition off. Sure. It might be a little bit more involved at first or even more. I might give you some homework to go do for a couple months. You do it. You come back. We then do phase two. We get that going. You go away, you come back. And then once you're off, you're ovulating. We just check in every now and again.
0: Okay. I have a couple quick questions. Yeah. Well, they're probably not going to be quick answers because you're so thorough, but... Um what the first one is this cardio and this could be a total myth it might be just bro science but i've been told and i've kind of experienced from my own clients that women seem to do better with uh interval cardio than steady state is that a, is that is there any truth to that or is that just anecdotal
1: anecdotal for the most part because when you think about it if somebody's in a heightened stress state Mm -hmm. having more stress, like doing intervals is not going to bode well for their poor nervous system.
0: Really? So you think, does that mean you think steady state cardio is just better or
1: Um, it it just depends on the person? person. Absolutely. And also to something like say substrate, like if you've got somebody who's not eating any carbs at all and you're going to get them to do sprints, good luck. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's not going to happen. Now if they're an insulin bomb, maybe we might, we might get something going there, but that's not necessarily a good thing. You yeah. know, research on women in particular, let's that's, that's, say looked at high intensity interval training mm-hmm. in women that have a high, heightened androgenic state from something like, um, I mean, I hate the name, but polycystic ovarian disease, I actually call it something else because that's just a misnomer name, but that research is showing that something like three minutes or three days a week, 20 minutes of high intensity intervals can really help reduce body composition and a whole bunch of different markers but the thing is, is those women aren't doing diets they're not doing yeah. any training
0: yeah yeah okay and the, the other question i want to ask and again it's probably bro science but do women do better with a high fat diets, diets versus high carb diets doesn't matter right
1: Individual yeah, because, Individual. so for, for example, um, fat will still elicit an insulin response. In particular, if somebody's super like insulin resistant, really? and we know that uh, somebody, the way that they break down the substrate, whether it's fat, carbs, or protein, is going to be dependent on their overall metabolic status. Some women might be better at, let's say, mobilizing um, carbs, and that's just through their own mechanisms. Now, if you take somebody that, say, has had a previous history of restrictive eating, um, they also have some, uh, nutrient imbalances. They also have some insulin resistance going on. Then the diet has to be tailored to that approach. Um, I mean, I look at individuals, I work with actually a lot of individuals that are, have been on or are on, uh, an oral contraceptive. And we know that an oral contraceptive can induce a state of insulin resistance. And so mm-hmm. the diet has to be suited for that individual. Um, same thing with a female on an androgen inducing, you know, androgens, like I mentioned before, they ins- induce insulin resistance. And so you have to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Now going low carb, it's like the low carb or bust mentality of the industry sometimes drives me nuts, yeah. because we still need food and carbohydrates to actually have hypothalamic pituitary ovarian function and hypothalamic pituitary adrenal function. And so mm-hmm. chronic low dieting has implications for an obligatory cycle, as well as for something like thyroid function and a whole host of other things. Okay. Diets for me, think about it like a therapeutic approach. If you're going to go to the doctor and say you got, um, I don't know, like acute bronchitis or something like that, yeah. um, you're going to go on a course of antibiotics. You're not going to go on an antibiotic forever, but you're going to uh-huh. go on a course of antibiotics. And I think we think of diets and certain diets in the last couple of years that have kind of exploded, like keto. Yeah or carnivore and that these are, they have a, uh, and I, I don't like when people devalue them, but yeah. I also like when people put them up on a pedestal, they play a specific role. And sometimes like the ketogenic diet has a specific therapeutic role that has been clinically shown in certain populations mm-hmm. based off of that. I mean, you look at something like uh, seizures or epilepsy that they, they showed in a specific population, the therapeutic benefits of that approach. Now in that type of setting, that individual might need to do a, a ketogenic approach for the rest of their life. Yeah. Whereas you might have somebody else who, even if they have epilepsy, don't need to follow it as carefully because sure. of other internal factors, carnivore diet, same thing that can have a very important therapeutic role. And this is no different. Like I would hope that, you know, a coach wouldn't start a client who's prepping say 16 weeks out for a show at uh, like the low carb, low fat, yeah only there's diets play a very specific role based off of a host of different factors Mm
2: -hmm. and i would
1: challenge people instead of just thinking about fats proteins and carbs again that very regimented approach to think about also the micronutrients to think about the digestibility of something to think about whether or not that compound or that food that substance has a um a potential allergenic response or inflammatory response and that because as much as there's research on say, eliciting fat loss with low carbohydrate diets, there's mm-hmm. also research on um, eliciting fat loss from eating an anti-inflammatory diet okay. or from in an elimination diet.
0: But these um, all, now you're opening up like a million more questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep going only because we've been on for over an hour and a half and yes. I, <laughs> we didn't really get a chance to touch on nutrition as much as I'd like to. If you would come on again at some point, maybe we can get into more about the diet. Because I just, just that last like 10 minutes actually added like another 15 questions. So
1: I was trying to throw it in because I knew you'd ask me to talk about it, but I knew like I might throw that curveball; It might get caught. It might (laughs) not.
0: No, I just, I just, (laughs) you you mentioned insulin resistant diet, like diets that brought up a question and just everything, everything, the whole last bit there we talked about, uh, opened up a whole other chapter. So. Uh, if you come on again, maybe we can ah. discuss nutrition more. Yes. And I'm sure this will open up a bunch of questions from uh, any women that watch or boyfriends of women that watch. And mm-hmm. uh, they'll have their own questions that I can actually touch on as well. Absolutely. But before you go, is there anything you want to, uh, any message you want to put out there, anything you want to plug kind of before you head off?
1: Ooh, um...
0: I always give people the opportunity to say what they really want to say. <laughs> kind of like an, an important message and overall scope of how you feel about yeah. things.
1: Well, I think so. A couple of things there is that right now, the in- industry I find is terrifying. Um, I think that like I, I've grown up in the industry, I've seen it for the last 15 years. And there has been an astronomical growth in the industry, which is awesome to see, you know, more competitors, um, in particular, more female competitors. Amazing. However, yeah. my, my caveat there is that there's also a lot of Really scary things happening yeah. from absolutely crazy regimes, whether it be for training or diet or drug use. Mm-hmm. And I feel that there is, because we're kind of in this age of social media, it's a lot easier to get bullshit out. Oh, yeah. But whenever we put bullshit out, it's a lot harder to take it back. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one thing that we can look to, even um, medicine, that it's hard to take back bad knowledge once it gets out there and especially once it gets put into practice. And so yeah. I think for anybody listening is just to remember that and to, to use information literacy to ask yourself, like if you hear somebody talking about something, ask why, okay, ask how, ask what, you know, just the basic, basic critical questions, because I, I can't tell you, like, I don't even, I follow more animals on Instagram than I do people <laughs> because even <laughs> though I'm in the industry, I can't stand bullshit. Yeah. Um, that When you go on and you read you know the next diet or try this you know try this supplement or try this protocol it's awesome for fat loss, and right away, I go like, "Well, for who under what circumstances yeah,
0: but people Why? want but people want
1: people want sexy, people want flashy, people want sparkly they don't want but
0: no, but that's not people want to be told like if i if you say i don't think you're wrong at all in what you're saying yeah. and and obviously, I just think. Mm-hmm. I would never want to put something out and have you think that about what yep. I wrote, but it's, yep. it's not because I think in absolutes, yeah. it's only because people want answers yeah. They sometimes they don't know how to search for their own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so I, I think that's why some people, but I'm not saying all, I think, I think you're right. A lot of it is sexy and marketing and they're just trying to sell up a thing.
1: Yeah, and don't if, worry. I'm not going to judge you. I don't judge people. No, no, I, I
0: know. I'm not. I'm just. <laughs> I I, I, don't,
1: I don't I, Paul, but I just think we have responsibilities as individuals that are, um, you know, have, have ideas, have knowledge, have platforms, is that there's a responsibility that we have, especially with our words. And something mm-hmm. as simple as just saying, here's the, you know, use your clickbait title. And then under your clickbait title, be like, hey, here's this approach. It's really awesome. It works for some people really great, but just keep in mind, It's not a one-size-fits-all like sometimes in that little caveat you're not under yourself you are from i mean from a legal standpoint you're actually disclosing some really important
2: information (laughs) but i think
1: that that the generalizing effect whether it's for dosing protocols whether it's for drugs whether it's for certain cycles what no matter what it is if we're talking about drugs or not that gets us into a really really difficult thing and i think you can even think about it in the most real world example there's a speed limit for a reason. That speed limit is set because of, you know, safety concerns or whatever it might be. But are there certain situations that you're going to speed? Sure, you might really have to pee. Your wife might be pregnant and she's going into labor, you gotta get there.
2: Yeah.
1: Whatever it might be, we have deviations and these deviations are a part of life. And I think that in the Mm -hmm. industry, we, people really like these really concrete, cute little boxes. Yeah. But that's what's getting us into the problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. Is that we like these really cute, pretty little boxes,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that there has to be greater awareness, and that we have the platform and the ability to do that. I mean, I'm very grateful that you had me on your show because this gives me that platform yeah. to to begin to talk about these things. So, no, and this is one of my my words of caution. Sorry.
0: No, and that's <laughs> actually why I have you and other people like you on the show because I want to give people all the different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And it's funny you mentioned that about the way you write things. John's the first person who taught me that. Yeah. John, I learned that from John. John was like, don't ever speak in absolutes. Mm-hmm. Actually, he never actually said that to me. Cause you know, John's not like a, I'm going to teach you. He's more like you kind of learn just by watching him. Yeah. So that was the first person that taught me that was don't, if you don't speak in absolutes, you'll be better off yeah. in the end. Absolutely. So, uh, no, that's, that's really good advice. Is there anything you want to plug before you go? <laughs> you're coaching, you're consulting, I, you have any yeah, books coming out?
1: I'm here for knowledge that's I mean I'm here as an educator yeah. and I'm here as somebody who is that this is as hopefully listeners or viewers can tell us. this is something I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Um, this is something that I've experienced myself. I mean, we didn't even get into my own story of where I even got to in the industry and how I did and everything else. but mm-hmm. um, it, it is something that I'm really passionate about, and it's something that as I'm seeing this growth. And as I'm seeing this, you know, the amazing growth in the the great stuff, it's also the uh, growth in the not so great stuff. Mm-hmm. And that I think having the opportunity to get good information out, that's why I do what I do. That's why, mm-hmm. I mean, why PhD, all that stuff is happening and still doing consulting and everything else. And so really the, the biggest thing for me is just to, to plug knowledge and to plug good knowledge
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and to get people to really begin to question what's being said and to apply just really good practical tools can't always apply knowledge but we can apply tools um i do have social media at victoria felker that's it and my website is exactly the same
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um but yeah that's not really why i'm here
0: so (laughs) no it's i appreciate it no i will link your i'll put your links in the description and your website as well because i do think the more people like you that are out there helping people the better off we all are so Um, I thank you very much for coming on and I do want to have you on again because there's so much we didn't discuss. So maybe in the near future sometimes, but I appreciate your time very, very much. You're welcome. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon, Victoria. Thank you very much.
2: You're welcome.